welcome to this week's World Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Miles Irving, and I'll shortly be introducing this week's guest, the great Jeremy Lee, who is chef at Quo Vardis. I'll say more about him in a while, but uh, we said we would have more chefs on the show, and um, and uh, we're, we're honouring that. Um, but first of all, I want to say a little bit more um, this week about you know the time that we're in, just just referencing um, how the plants are growing and and developing at this time. That's something that's going to be uh, expanded upon in this week's pick cast. Now the pick cast is something that's emerged as a result of the podcast with Mark Lewis last week because he sent us so many photographs. Um, we decided to have a separate thing on YouTube where you can just look at the pictures that we were discussing and uh, hear it here hear what we sort of chatted around them. Um, but it's inspired us to um, actually invite guests to give us some pictures that we can then make a topic of conversation for for a sort of separate add-on, uh, the the, uh, the Worldwide Pickcast um, on YouTube every week. Um, or alternatively, if, if we're meeting face-to-face as I have with this week's guest, um, we actually take some pictures of, of some, in this case, some plants that I brought up for Jeremy to see um, and we're hoping also to get some photographs of the, of the dishes he's come up with. Um, yeah, so those plants which I brought up, I, I decided to bring in, you know, it had to be a selection of what's in season. But, you know, there's things which are in season for several months, such as the sea kale, or sea purslane is something that's in season all year round. Um, but there's a real um, proliferation right now, um, this being July, of aromatic plants um, that are in flower, so with very flavoursome aromatic flowers, and it's that that sort of height of the summer, um, the aromatic quality seems to be at its peak, and um, it's kind of interesting because those things are good for us now to make summer puddings and to flavour our dishes, our stews and and uh, and soups, and and also I'm starting to put these uh, aromatics such as chamomile to just chop them very finely and put them through a salad and um, similarly the mugwort flowers that go very nicely with tomatoes there's a whole kind of aromatic quality that can be added to pretty much anything you cook in, in many different ways because there's so many different ones to choose from at the moment but at the same time we're doing a lot of drying um, and we're especially drying the meadow sweet which is a, a wonderful very uniquely flavored uh, aromatic spice flower um, because it's something we want to use all year round and for the uh, the forager business we we find that chefs and bartenders are interested in using that all year round so um, it's interesting because those flavors are characteristic of this time of year but they're also things that we're going to sort of set aside and and allow to be available all year round and just thinking about that in terms of tradition and um you know just the emergence of life through you know plants and and animals co-evolving most of these plants are also medicinal so you can see how our ancestors um would have as you know as we're doing now um had us had a store of them that they could draw upon at other times of years because uh, other times of the year because they'd need those medicinal things to enhance health and and fend off disease and heal, heal disease and so on. So there's some thoughts about the, the, the time we're in. And um, also another thought about the place that I'm in. Um, obviously, it's a, uh, a given that hunter-gatherers 
got what they needed from the place where they lived. Um, interestingly, that part of that, which is not often considered, is that the seasons would change and so they would move around so um, within a territory. So they were only nomadic within a territory that they called home. But they'd find more of what they needed at certain times a year in one place rather than another. Um, but I, I can make no claims to be nomadic. I live um, on a piece of ground in... Um, in East Kent. But my neighbour at the moment is making a massive excavation uh, to put foundations down for an extension out of the back. And what's come out of there is a lot of clay, but also quite stony soil. And interestingly, we have a drive leading up to the house or leading down from the main road, uh, which is actually the neighbour's property rather than mine. So he's responsible to maintain it. But the really interesting thing is it's got dips in it from um, constant use. And it's no use putting stones in those dips because the wheels of a car will just knock those stones out. So it's, it's kind of difficult to, to, to make them good. But it turns out exactly what we need is um, clay with stones in it because that will bed down and, and not move. So I've just been quite delighted to see that we had all that we needed um, right on our doorstep or right on our neighbor's doorstep, but it was just hidden underground. He had, to, he had to dig for it. So now I'm enjoying not being bumped around quite so much as I drive in and out of um, the place where we live every day. Right, so I'm going to get on now and, and introduce this week's guest, Jeremy Lee. He's a, a wonderful chef and uh, a very bright and and funny and um, likeable man. When I first asked him would he like to do the podcast, he said um, his reply by email was, um, what joy? I can think of nothing finer. And I, I, I can't think of anyone I, I get quite such an enthusiastic or, or funny response to, from uh, uh, regarding anything. So um, I'm delighted to have him um, on the podcast and he's, he's agreed to host me at Quo Vadis Restaurant in London, of which he is chef proprietor. If you're living in the, in the UK and, and you watch telly at all, you'll know him as someone that, that's, that's been um, both a, a competitor and a judge on the Great British Menu. Um, and he's also written for The Guardian. He's, he's, he's done a column called The King of Puddings, which is just delightful to read. Um, it'll inspire you to to cook all the things that, that, that he writes about because uh, he does it so nicely. Um, just to tell you a little bit of his story, um, he was shortlisted for a Glenfiddich Food Award for, for his writing in The Guardian. Um, and he's worked with restaurateur Terence Conran, where he, he worked alongside uh, Simon Hopkinson, who's gone on to be one of our no best, best known and loved food writers, um, and also with uh, the great chef Alistair Little. So that was, that was his background before he came into um, kind of his own, as it were, working at the uh, Blueprint Cafe also for, for Terence Conran, where, where he, he worked for a long time before he became... Uh, the uh, chef proprietor of Corvatis. So, okay, that's my introduction done, and um, we'll go down and start talking to Jeremy. Well, I'm sitting here in the illustrious Corvatis uh, Club bar with the uh, chef proprietor, none other than Jeremy Lee himself. So, um, I guess it should be you welcoming me, actually, but. Uh, <laughs> Welcome to Corvadas, Mars. Yes. As always, the greatest pleasure. <laughs> and, and 
and welcome to the World Wild Podcast. So I wanted to kick things off. I just had to silence you a minute ago because you started saying interesting things and I wasn't recording. We can't, we just can't have that. So uh, you'll have to say it all over again in a minute. But uh, I wanted to kick it off with uh, with two questions. It's probably not fair because you'll have to remember what the first one was, well, I'll ask the second. But two questions are, why do you do what you do? And secondly, how did your journey get you from where you were to here? Oh, golly, how long have you got? Um, there's Ages. a story. Wait, um, there's a story, Miles. I think that, Lord, what, who was it that said when you're telling a story, it's best to start at the beginning? And I think, as we were talking about earlier, before we started, one of the things um, most interesting, I think, about my journey was the timing of it. Mm. Uh, when I was a late teenager, but bothered, no one really knew what to do. There was the dark last days of the Cold War, and food um, in the British Isles was not in great shape. But I lucked out having two parents who loved it. Um, and the city of Dundee, where I grew up on the east coast of Scotland, um, was so remote that it still had good little grocer's shops and bakers. Mm. And the very last days of it, though. But you still had a high street that you could pull up in in a car, stop outside the shop, go in and buy your bag of rolls from the baker and your bag of potatoes and vegetables from the green grocer. And then go to the grocers for butter and bacon and bread. And that's very much how we grew up. I thought this was just normal daily living. This is, you know, we didn't even think about it as children. We were so small. But when it came to... Um, Later, when I started in restaurants, basically just to make some money to contemplate going to art college um, to pursue illustration. Um, and I was a terrible waiter, really rubbish, and dropped everything and gossiped an embassy with all the folk in the dining room. I'm sure you charmed the guests. <laughs> well, possibly too much. I mean, there's other tables to look at, Jeremy, you can do that. Um, and then they said, um, Have you considered the kitchen? Um, and I think that shows you pretty much what um, how kitchens and chefs were regarded by them. They just took me off the floor and put me in the kitchen rather than dismissing them. And when... And it was so kind I, of nice of them, really. I was, well, harking back now, amazing. And some zeitgeist was going on there, which my dad saw particularly. And said, like, well, this is great. You know, it saves him a fortune and all college fees and, you know... And, and the boy can cook, he's going to come home <laughs> and cook for us. <laughs> Okay. Pretty much, you know, yeah. what are you going to do with you? I've got, I've got an ear and a spear already. You know, what are you going to do with the third son? Church is out of the question. You know, football, forget it. Um, could be a cook. And in those days, it's all middle class. Sort of cook or army, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, point, exactly. Yeah. In the army, well, we, that, that would have been very short-lived, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Dispatched even quicker than from the I church. I often think there's some similarity, though. Like, uh, young men in need of a little direction and shaping. No, absolutely. And do you work in a kitchen or join the army? I mean, well, boot camp. But brilliantly, though, I'd say happily, I managed to avoid the boot camp. And I've only ever worked with very decent, good people in kitchens. Right. Um, which is very important, talking about that. I managed to avoid the whole chef scenario, um, which is remarkable given the skill. What you mean, the sort of bully boy hierarchical? Yes, that very nice, you know, old school, yeah. old boy network. You know, a bit gung-ho, um, and all they wanted to be was a saucier. And I was like, well, you know, into, you know, but it's just a frying, it's just a steak in a frying pan with a bit of brown stuff on it. And certainly as it was back there, it went very uninteresting. 
And even then, I was interested more in salads and leaves and mm. ingredients and produce. That was far, always far more interesting, and fillings. Um, and one of the things that, you know, back then, it was very rare for a middle-class kid, privately educated, you know, from a fee-paying background, God knows how our parents did this, but the lesson they did, uh, to go into a kitchen. You know, we were educated to be dentists and lawyers and solicitors and, you know, all the, you know, join mm. the professions. Um, but while I was doing that, at the same time in, in the South, in London, there were people like Simon Hopkinson and Alison Little and Rowley Lee, you know, on a similar trajectory, mm. um, obviously older and already established, um, doing things. And it was, there was at that, right about that time, that this thing called modern British, well, modern European cooking, as it was called back then, was being born. And so all this, so Nouvelle Cuisine had arrived on our shores. It was just a joke when folk were just, you know, hollowing out a courgette, shoving a cat in there. Just fighting nonsense. Just yeah. rubbish. Yeah, yeah. You know, little bits of mottled, you know, um, they swapped that, you know, the tomato cucumber and mustard cress garnish was swapped for these little five things. So you're not saying that the Nouvelle Cuisine was, was bogus, you're saying that people... That were trying to ape it in the yeah, UK, the we're just doing a very bad job. Yeah, the interpretation. No, the new yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. The lightening of food. Oh no, they were pulling down the curtains and letting the light in on this ancient old fusty haute cuisine um, and bourgeois cooking. I really got very tired, I think. Um, and, you know, this new generation of young youth was coming in who were going, not for me. And at the same time, what fueled this, you know, quiet revolution? Uh, was producers and growers and folk knocking on the door, coming in, yourself was one of them, um, with baskets of stuff just picked from a garden going, would you like this? Mm. And suddenly it was no longer a telephone call at midnight going, mm, you wanted only two kilos of potatoes yeah. and a stack of onions. It was, you know, suddenly this bounty started appearing. And uh, the menus changed overnight and um, Nouvelle Cuisine was dispatched. Modern European cooking was, you know, where we did appalling things to risotto, was dispatched, and modern British cooking was born. And then you suddenly had bacon makers and ham makers and cheese, cheese makers. Niels Yardier was doing unbelievable things. And the, all the, the re-emergence of all this stuff that had been dying throughout yeah. the 70s and the 80s. And this yeah. sort of strange myth that, you know, we had no culture of food at all, we had no appreciation of food, we were just going down this awful commercial route. Um, I'm going to pitch my papers and I'm what are you talking about? You know, have another kipper. You know, have, enjoy some smoked herring and enjoy some potato salad with it. And so very simple, good, plain, Protestant Presbyterian fare, which was the norm, um, suddenly become, got embellished. And mackerels really was rediscovered suddenly as a delicious thing. But what you're saying, though, is that, the, that within that, as you call it, Presbyterian fare thing, there was actually substantial, robust food culture that, that, that hadn't, oh, amazing. hadn't been interrupted. Yeah, no, absolutely. It had lying dormant. It had um, waited in the wings quietly and patiently and just sat in the shadows, this little wallflower, you know, waited to be called. And when it was asked to join the frame, you know, come out of the shadows onto the dance floor, you know, its dance card filled pretty damn quick. It was amazing to watch. And suddenly, this enlightenment 
appeared and that's what ignited the huge interest in restaurants and food and cooking and journalism and writing and cookery books and gosh it came out as it was like a tsunami just wave upon wave and generations kept going this wasn't here for it wasn't just a, a, a one wonder one overnight hit it was a, this was here to stay and has remained thus ever since and you can see how strong how much stronger it gets all the time i must admit you're giving a different take on it to the to the one that, that, that I've probably quite in ignorance rehearsed. You know, the thing that the thing that um, that, that struck me was more that because um, in a way there was a feeling that we didn't have much uh, tradition to base anything on, that people have thrown the rule book away and just been allowed to be enormously creative. But the way that that you're putting it, it's almost like well, okay, there, there was a foundation. Oh, I think there was but, very much that, and I think there was a strange thing of we didn't have a great restaurant culture, yeah. and there were some ropey hotels doing some pretty bog ordinary stuff, and a few restaurants, I suppose. I mean, there was the amazing hole in the wall. Um, there was an ubiquitous chip in Glasgow. There was a few isolated places doing their thing, um, but there were very few and far between, and caught. Um, was becoming apparent was there was an appetite for this but there was still this awful Protestant feeling of you could not spend good money on food in a restaurant that your wife would cook at home and women were definitely you know there was a, even then there was the blood going out well when does you know putting food on the table being a housekeeper and servant you know this was all being blurred and so you still have things like well why would, would you like some water no get me you know I can have tap at home and the breaking down of those, you know, this reticence and reluctance to indulge and enjoy. Yeah. And because, yeah. you know, going to a restaurant was an event, it was an affair, and it was a celebration, rather than just being something that was a daily part of life. Mm-hmm. And the, the difference, you know, how, how could you change that? So the classic roast beef and your steak and kidney pie and all that kind of stuff, you know, hovered around still always. Um, but it was still very much steak feet mentality and a chicken breast with mushrooms and white wine and cream sauce held sway for a way up into the 80s. Um, and then in the 90s was when it all changed, when all the great suppliers started bringing stuff to the kitchens. Can I just ask, what, what, are we, what time frame are we talking about when you first worked in the kitchen? Does that so I would have started late 70s late 70s yeah and then it was a dim dark time and then in the 80s um, just I mean were a riot wild but nobody really knew what they were doing I don't think there was a lot of experimenting a lot of crazy confused dishes um, couldn't you know fusion cooking was coming in clashing with Nouvelle Cuisine the old French standards were being pulled down right left and centre um, Italian cooking was suddenly becoming interesting which I'd never done before um, and bread was suddenly coming back into the, onto the market. Folk discovered their love of butter. And all this at the same time, while the vast commercial industry and commerce was trying to wipe all this out and push on through and get this awful plastic-wrapped food onto the tables. Mm. So it's a really interesting time of revolt and rebellion and exploration and discovery and sort of, you know, revolutionary, but with a very small R. Yeah. was beginning to happen on. And that kind of chaos of, of people yeah. starting from scratch and, and buckling about, really. Well, I know. And I think from those, you know, from the Good Food Guide under the editorship of Tom Jane, and Tom Jane is pivotal for this one because he really 
having followed, you know, and Drew Smith as well, really championed this new breed of young chefs emerging mm. um, who ate good food at home and had travelled abroad and ate good food abroad and liked restaurants and enjoyed them very much and thought wine was delicious um, and not and not posh. That was the very that was the key right. thing to whole thing. Um, but that we like brasseries and bistros. Why why can't we have these here? Mm. And so foods that would normally have been thought to be in inns or pubs of old or old countryside restaurants, you're suddenly cooking food right back in the middle of, of towns that would have been more country like you know. And, Test that expression, peasant cooking, and all sorts. So offensive. Because um, what that was, was folk with minimum means, um, out of necessity and frugality, created great, robust cooking. Yeah. Um, and so beans and pork all in a pot together with many vegetables um, that were then made fragrant with beautiful herbs mm-hmm. and leaves. Mm-hmm. And they might have gone outside, and as you showed us the way Mars were all your foragings over the years and what you brought to us, all on our doorstep. It was all there and always had been and it had always been used and it just gone, you know, an industrial revolution, two world wars and enormous social upheaval had just put to sleep for a while while all this chaos was going on in the world. Well, I suppose one of the issues is that you always think it comes from somewhere else. Now, I, 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 I love to tell this story that um, the, the flavour that we have in a clove Oh, well, there's something that we actually, as, as the history books tell us, inadvertently uh, formed the basis of the British Empire as we went overseas and people lost fortunes and fought wars and so on to establish trade routes and monopolies on trade routes to get that stuff here. And so the, uh, the opulence of, of, of the rich, they, they used those spices as, as status symbols to, yes. to impress their neighbours, like having a Merc parked in your driveway or something. All the while, little Mary Jane, living in a hovel down the road, had the same flavour from a little plant called Woodhavens. It was there all the time. It was a good flavour. But the rich being so alienated, they wouldn't even talk to... You know, they wouldn't even know that the thing that they've gone to... This extraordinary export was here. It was here. Yeah, I'm not even sure they were allowed to converse. Mm. In France, there was definitely a thing that you... I think if you were an aristocrat or landed, um, you were only allowed to use your, you were only allowed your your bit, and that was it. You couldn't tell anyone else's land. And the upper classes had sort of strange, draconian laws and weird ways of doing. And the worst thing that came out of the emergence of the middle classes was this bizarre thing to ape. An idea of not working, not getting your hands dirty. You know, you would hire a cook, you wouldn't cook. You would hire a maid, you wouldn't clean. You wouldn't, you know. And they'd sort of sit there festering, watching someone break another glass or, you know, not dust a shelf or, you know, the pastry came up a little bit leaden and the, the pie wasn't so good and, you know, there was a sweaty cook had gone, you know, filled over. And so this long, torturous, awful proceeding of several hundred years of teaching servants how to do things and how to um, achieve the goodness and then them being diminished completely by aristocrats, thank you, bringing in very grand chefs and particularly after the French Revolution, you know, they were all booted out, you know, what do you do with them? So they got them quite cheap and then so this ascendancy of French cooking over British uh, cooking. This is where the restaurants came from. These were the oh, no. private chefs of the rich yeah. who suddenly had to do something else for a living and they started 
I just had families to support, lots of families to draw on to come and work in their restaurants. And the original restaurant was a, was a restorative. It was a cup of soup. Almost like a consomme-like thing or bovril or something like that. And that's what it was, just soup, you know. And what was the easiest, quickest, cheapest way to feed someone? Soup. And so soup came into the absolute, you know, genius of everything. And then from soup, you then get pot au feu, bolito misto, um, and on it goes. And then you then thicken that stock with flour, and then you get a, a, a good glossy sauce with which to put in a pie. And then these become the braises of the future. But were these were these dishes that, in a sense, originated from from these um, classical French kitchens in the fine houses and, and things? Or? I don't think so. If no. you go through the roll call of dishes, there's a sandwich. There is um, no one remembers um, sauce marengo or maybe beef stroganoff. Um, but most of those dishes named for aristocrats and battles and generals and, you know, um, who's it's and what's it's. Um, no one cooks them anymore. What they do cook is boeuf bourguignon, coq au vin, pot au feu. Um, and then you change that to here and it's chicken and white wine and braised beef or a steak and kidney pudding, that remarkable British dish. Mm. Um, and that band of water the channel has, you know, was extraordinary. And it's, you know, dishes so corrupted. And you might have a turnage or a Rossini, I suppose, and pong cocktail. But by the late 70s, it was remarkable how few of those dishes had survived. And that myriad, um, there's millions of dishes to celebrate all sorts of things. And not the dishes you remember. I mean, well, you might, you'll know the name Karam, but you won't know any of the dishes he cooked. Or maybe a few have come through and will have gone down the great line of like the grandest Michelin three-star restaurants who are the only ones who can afford that kind of cooking anyway. Um, but mostly I would think you'll find that the, the great seam of cooking that now dominates um, absolutely and rightly is food off the land. Normal people's food. Proper crop, proper tuck. You know, and the food that your grandmother would have served you, and that's the stuff that lingers in the memory. And I think if you offered someone, um, you know, you just mentioned sardines on toast or cheese on toast, and people go, they get dewy-eyed. <laughs> but if you, ever, if you were to offer them some, you know, kyle soccer fires, you know, the, the, the days of the epicures and the gourmands, um, which I'm sure that, of course, they still exist. But the cooking doesn't. I don't think, but the appetites for delicious food do. And um, what is more and more prevalent now is produce in great ingredients, and that's what drives. How the- how far do you think that the thing around produce, both for chefs and the people dining out these days, is is kind of edging into a territory that people want to feel a connection with landscapes? Oh, I think it's and seasons yes. and, and living systems and. Well, the big. Issue, Mars, it's, I mean, it's an enormous issue, I think. And one of the things is that fresh food is, is now very expensive. And this is a great issue. And I think the days of when mutton was, you know, cheap chow and plentiful, and, you know, no. now it's one of the most expensive and rarest meats in the country. Mm. Um, kid, goat, um, it's almost, it's more expensive than veal. Um, and there's all this 
and it's all about education and learning and exploring and finding out more about what all these ingredients once were. We had them all. You read Eliza Acton in 1845, and that book is about as bright and as fresh now as it was then, mm. and still about there's much to learn, there's much to find out. Here's all this cooking. Um, and Eliza Acton was amazing because she was the one who was so plagiarised on the back of this. I mean, this is the first ordered cookbook written expressly to educate people at home cooking for them to cook. Okay. Not for them to teach the servants. Not the servants. No, no, no. Eliza Acton, <laughs> amazing, sorry, was actually a very well, highly regarded poet and published. Um, but when she went to her same publisher um, with another book of slender verse, a slender of Tillman verse, and he said, I don't want, it's not poetry I want, love. I want recipes. And she took the bit between her teeth, remarkably, and instead of going home with a tail between her legs, rebuffed, she went, well, immersed herself in her mother's kitchen, where she kept house for her mum, for 10 years in Kent, and wrote and cooked everything that was in her book. Where was she in Kent? Um, Tunbridge, I think. Oh, okay, yeah. Nearby? The wheels. No, we're, we're the other side. Yeah. You're the other side. <laughs> um, and it was an overnight sensation. And remained in print right up until the beginning of the 20th century. Um, but there were other characters, curiously and most infamously, like Mrs. Beaton, who plagiarised hugely. Right. Um, and, it was, and her ascendancy was based entirely on household management as well as. So that was for the servants. Yeah. That was for the, that was yeah. for the servants. And which was a great tragedy. And in fact, Elizabeth David famously quoted um, Had I been given a. Mrs. Beaton instead of an Eliza Acton over my oh no Mrs. Leal to be brutally fair. Um, she'd have never she'd have never been a food writer. Kind of boring, and bourgeois, you know, bourgeois crisis, and that's one of my favourite terms. But it was very much the thing of you know this this alienating people from food. find that your your writing when you're doing your column about puddings and cakes <laughs> it does seem like you've got a sort of flamboyant um, and very jolly friend standing right next to you in the kitchen conveying the the, the delight that you're having in this, in this <laughs> it just makes me laugh and smile to read oh, thank think, you God, yeah. us deeply. Uh, but I think you've got to do that unless, unless you're wanting to um, put people off <laughs> Oh, with, it's all... with the technicality and the difficulty of it, and then therefore achieve, no. uh, you know, you've you've told them about your prowess, and they thought, but I never could, you know. Oh, no, exactly. If you're actually going to take somebody with you, there has to be that sense yeah. of drawing. Well, it's, it's so interesting, Michael. What the, the whole everything about food is all about getting it to table, and at table you then have all your near and dear, or what you don't know at all, or how, how whatever the, the the makeup of the group is, for conviviality and joyousness and exactly. pleasure and 
food's a vehicle for bringing up joy and cheer to table and bringing up, you know. Well, do, 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 do you know, um, see, I mean, I, I, I face this challenge at home. I've got all of this information at my fingertips regarding uh, the extraordinary nutritional benefits of wild plants, oh, wow, even, yeah. even, even, even the medicinal benefits, and then the fact that they've still got their wild bacteria and their enhanced gut flora and all these things. But I'm, I'm, I'm in this um, process of trying to transition my kids who, you know, we haven't got enough of that good stuff in, in, in our diets in the last no. few years. And I'm trying to bring it more in, you know. But 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 I make a mistake of bringing this 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 attitude of should and ought into it. Yeah. And it makes it all edgy. But then, but then I read a study about this conviviality thing that apparently you don't receive the nutrition through your gut unless you are dialed down in this really kind of social yes. friendliness. All about lunch. If you're uptight when you're eating, you might as well not eat lunch. Oh. So, I, so I'm in this dilemma of kind of hassling my kids to eat stuff and making it all oh, come on, you know, yeah. and realising actually... You might as well just give them a McDonald's if you're going to do that. So no, absolutely. There's much, much pleasure as, you know, as a bottle of TCP or something like that. <laughs> as much pleasure. But the point is that the, the pleasure is, you know, this idea, this this sort of um, puritanical... I mean, I don't think it's fair to even say that because apparently the Puritans loved feasting. It's apparently slanderous, actually. But oh, this idea that, you know. but, 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 but this idea that, 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 that you have to be, you know, a sort of hedonist that's ruining yourself in the world in order to have pleasure in food is, is so completely wrong. Oh, because actually, rot and rubbish. Actually, exactly. to, to have pleasure when you eat is essential yeah. to your actual well-being and, and physical health. Yeah, and longevity. Yeah, you're right. There is actually something repugnant about that late, that 18th century, 19th century, you know, this tiny, incredibly wealthy Bracted folk who gorged and feasted and gave themselves gout endlessly and, you know, could be, almost got carried from lunch to dinner. But they were actually eating bad food, weren't they? Let's yeah, well, not great, you know. And, and those, you know, why on earth you want to go back to a realm without, you know, when a time when there wasn't penicillin and, you know, medicine to get, you know, to help you down and knowledge and enlightenment, but in the dark ages where it's, you know, it's a raft of stuff doing everything for you. Um, it's, it's so horrendous for to sit around the table getting, you know, a wash with brandy and wine and not feeling good, you know. I mean, I think one of the things... The point is it's not actually pleasure. That's, no. That, at that level, it isn't pleasure. Yeah. And that's a message that came through to restaurants very clear to us when we were starting out, was please don't stuff us. We don't need a plate like that, mounded high, um, to justify a restaurant price. We just want something delicious. Um, and that, you know, and the pleasure of folk getting being able to rise elegantly from a table. Lightly. And, but, uh, and, yeah. and go home maybe a bit lightheaded, you know, but not stuffed and going, oh, God almighty, you know, that's, that's gross. <laughs> you know, and it has no pleasure whatsoever. And one of the things, one of the things I loved particularly, um, starting when I found flying menus, was herbs and everything. You know, you just saw fire, you know, if you look at Turkish cooking and Lebanese, you know, all the cooking of the Levant, um, one of the things that they had, um, and I always thought it was a shame that they called it the Mediterranean diet, which I always thought it was an unimaginative term imaginable. It's also Lebanese. a huge, I mean, it's a huge area. So we're I mean, actually it's colossal about, with yeah, every yeah. kind of religion and style and what have you, and multifaceted 
um, on you know so wonderfully complex and rich. Um, but one of these lost shells was an abundance of herbs and brightness and freshness mm. um, that I always thought was alluring, and I would no sooner try and emulate a dish I in Beirut or Marrakesh in London, God alone, Scotland, United States, because I thought that's where a lot of confusion went. But the ideas and the inspiration from that you could the then kind of put approach, into your cooking. The sort of broad Precisely approach, yeah. so, yeah. and I think that changed everything. That, that really did um, alter dramatically how you view things and how you came, to, came you arrived at conclusions, going, you know, well, I'm not embarrassed, that's pointless, I'm not going to do that. But the idea of this abundance of bright freshness, you know, suddenly makes it, you know, your food was singing. Well, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've, I haven't travelled much in, in the Mediterranean, but I have been to, to Lebanon, and, and I had the pleasure of going to the household of, of somebody with uh, generations going back into the far distance of people that had eaten the wild foods. And um, I was served up dishes there, which I mean, opened up an aspect of the Mediterranean diet. I put a few yeah. wild plants into a salad, and I think... You know, I'm really engaging with this thing. They served me three dishes in a row that was, that was uh, no, two to be fair, that was nothing but wild plants. It was a whole plateful. They, they gave me a plate of watercress, a bowl of olive oil with, with, with sea salt and crushed garlic, and the procedure was you just pick up a piece, swish it around in, in, in that bowl of oil, eat it, munch your way through that. And the next one was called 13 Wild Herbs in Arabic. I wrote it down and all the names and so on, but that's what, what? it was. It was a plate of 13 wild herbs. I thought, crikey, these people don't mess about. No, this is, and this is an aspect of the Mediterranean diet that doesn't get mentioned, but that's that's no. that's an aspect across the Mediterranean. People would have eaten great big plates full of nothing. Hot, but well, I'm just going yeah. to... Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's very important, and I noticed it in once there was, a, there was several Vietnamese restaurants in Shoreditch. So when they first opened, had these, every dish came with this abundance of beautiful um, leaves on it. And then over time, when I went and I didn't go for a while for one reason or another, and then when I did go back, and I ordered the dishes that I loved particularly, and they go, where were all the hands? Went, oh, we just kept throwing them in the bin, they didn't eat them here. You know, and there was a reluctance in everyone. How, how is that? Why, why wouldn't you want to engage with this? And it's, I think it's that nervous politeness, which I think has always been a curious quality of um, the British, you know, um, if you're unsure what to do, then just, you know, just eat, you know. There's that brilliant scene in the film Tampopo, um, one of my all-time favourite film, Japanese, of course, um, and when the young um, clerk follows all the grandees into this ball, into the restaurant, the private dining restaurant, and they'll say, they're going, oh, I'll just have a beer, and oh, I'll have a green salad, and this full of soul. And then this young clerk goes, um, this dish is the signature dish of the chef at Taiwan in Paris. They went, yes, sir, it is. But I would like that. And, uh, and just, and, uh, and, you know, he's being kicked under the table by his boss, going, shut up, what are you doing? Show us all over. You know, I'm never going to get this chance again. You know, I just ordered this unbelievable dinner. And the kitchen goes on fire with it. And then he gets the wine list and he's going, well, this Latash. What's the, you know, going, yes, that bottle of Latash. Exactly. So, you know, eat well, you know. <laughs> But this shy reticence about, oh, God, no, I don't want to stand out, I don't want to, you know, this shyness, which is almost completely obliterated now, but still, but... We're there all is grabbing it with both hands now, yeah. aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> family hold back? I don't think so. <laughs> Great. I mean, that, 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 
does make me think of something though. When you when you speak of that issue with those uh, Vietnamese restaurants and and just what was the gap there between uh, could be eating all these herbs, didn't eat all these herbs, and I just wonder what role you think front of house could, should, does, may have. Oh, I mean, everything, yeah. I mean, you know, if people are not able to engage with what's been put in front of them because mm. they have, they just don't know, how oh. far can front of house go to... I mean, they're not going to hassle oh, with the job, but can they facilitate? Can they instruct? Can it, I mean... Well, I think it's yeah. key to everything. Yeah. I don't think there was any... It was very interesting when the big Scandinavian um, revolution in restaurants happened um, and... Noah came flying out, you know, to the fall. The and Rennie's Red Zeppi's idea, and I think it's born in uh, Fernandez's restaurant in Spain originally, but this idea that the chefs the took chefs dishes will. to the table and mm. say, we've made this this morning, here's your journey. And the cynical might say, wow, that's just a little bit of your ass, and what's the point of that one? But, so I should speak such language. Um, but in reality, it was, you know, I've cooked this, this is what you're going to eat, here's the story. Mm. Um, and, you know... And people have a right to know. I mean, why should it be... And why, why not? They're going to eat it, damn it. They're paying for it. They've got a right... Yeah, I mean, if under, you know, if you're all under one roof, why can't everyone under one roof engage, you know? And that's, you know, we just think it would take it beyond extending the family. And, you know, if you're in the kitchen and you're busy cooking, you don't have time to engage with the coronavirus necessarily. So what you'll need to do is make sure that your family do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it takes it takes it takes the right kind of instruction. My, my, ambassadors for the kitchen. Really. I mean, my feeling. That, that, uh, apologies if if if, uh, if 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 your extraordinary front of house completely contradict what I'm saying, <laughs> and I'd be delighted to know that they do. But my feeling is that the front of house generally aren't kept abreast sufficiently mm. with, with what's going on, because my experience dining out is generally they they haven't got a clue. Whenever I ask a pertinent question mm-hmm. about the dish. Or the menu, or anything like that. They say, "I'll just go and ask you." Yeah. And then they didn't understand the question, and they come out and tell me something wasn't the answer <laughs> to my question. And, they, and, and, and it's my podcast, so I'll grumble if I want to. Um, I also feel, as a supplier, I get even more cross because I don't find that the extraordinary ingredients that we've got and the extraordinary backstory that they have are in any way being conveyed to the guest. Because when I go as a guest, it sure isn't conveyed to me. So I That's personally crazy. feel. The, the, the front of house thing needs a bit of a revolution because it's, it's almost like you guys are in the kitchen going bada, 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 and saying something profound and what comes out to the guests is <laughs> and they go home none the wiser oh but then I've got one sorry if that's a... not at all no but there is there, there are God, there are so many as always with any um, issues there are always exceptions and the greatest exception that is the River Cafe out in Hammersmith, yes. London. Um, one of the brilliant things you see every day happening in that um, uh, old brilliant restaurant is after lunch, um, it used to be Ruth and Rose, sadly Rose is now gone, so it's mm. now Ruth does it, sits down with the head chefs and the sous chefs at a table, they go through the menu. I mean, it's amazing to see this. And along that enormous length of beautiful shiny stainless steel bar beneath those meadows, so it's glittering and gleaming. The entire front of house are standing there, Fantastic. picking herbs, peeling, chopping, stoning, seeding, you know, you name it. They're engaged wholeheartedly. So they actually know it, buddy. Oh, yeah. They don't even They've know about it. it. They know it. They've prepared yeah. it. They've prepared yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, they're hungry. Yeah, here you go. Right. And then the chefs get it to cook. And it's amazing. I mean, it's almost worthwhile 
booking a later table to stay and have lunch. He was there during the afternoon when we get booted out before dinner starts just to see this fantastic production going on. And that's every day. Every day. And it is, oh, it's almighty. I mean, it's, it's quite a thing. And they are an exceptional restaurant. And it's very rare. But I think the more you can engage... You know, and bring stuff on going, you know, if you can get away with oh, it's not my job mentality and clear out all that sort of that tiresome um, old school, you know, hang, hanging on that people clutch onto. Um, if you ditch that mentality and engage and just go, this is this is amazing, I'm handling these beautiful produce. And the, and the smells that come up when you're handling it mm. in this fresh air is a very wonderful thing. I, I mean, I, I just feel that the what I touched on earlier, and, and, and you, you, you agreed that there was a there was a sense of people wanting to connect with things that that, that radiate out from that dinner. Oh, party. You know, the roots of that plate that's in front of them is something that is of great concern to people now, and I think they've just been robbed of that experience if they don't if they don't know all of the connections that are engendered by that plate of food, the connections within your mind as a creative person. Yeah. And with a person with a history of food and how you got from there to here in this dish, and then the suppliers, and then the, the, the history of that particular vegetable or that particular organic farm. That's part of people's rich yeah. dining experience, and they've been robbed, I feel. Well, something definitely went all right, and there has been a remarkable clutch of people, yourself, you know, your, the, you know the Randolph, you know, the, the herb and wild food equivalent of Randolph Hodgson. Uh, or Patricia at La Fromagerie, uh, or Monica at Brindisa, or George at Fresh Olive Company, oh, well, who bring amazing produce to us. And, you know, I was brought up in a shopping you know, mentality. So the daily thing was to find good things with which to cook good things, to feed good folk well, was just the, not the most lovely adventure. Well, I, I, I always remember the, fil- the film of, about Howard Carter. I don't know if, 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 you, if, you've, if you've seen it, where they were going into the... the, uh, the the um, the vaults in the pyramids. There's this amazing scene where he, he he breaks through, but it's just enough room for him to squeeze through, and the dust settles, and he's got a torch. And the guy says, uh, "Howard, uh, what's in there?" And he just says in this reverent whisper, "He says, wonderful things." Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and it is indeed just that. What you want to do is open the boxes when they arrive, and out come wonderful things in abundance. You know, and when you get, oh God, I mean, I thought, the one I always find with you, Miles, that I always loved was chickweed. And I remember chickweed growing up, it was literally just, I mean, it's not the most poetic name in the, in the world, and it was just some rubbish like this one. Well, it's the, the usual derogatory name based on the fact people fed it to chickens. We've got yeah, hogweed and um, swinecress you know, and... Oh, I mean, it's extraordinary. There's an amazing, you know, litany of names for all this kind of thing. Chamomile was just, you know, dandelion, you know, peace on me because I'm piss, you know cat's pissed on it you know this extraordinary remarkable thing you know and you just know that's just middle class conditioning what have you because the upper classes didn't think anything of going snipping a few leaves and foraging like that and there's an amazing story there's a wonderful film in Milady Vine which is Philippe de Rothschild's memoir of his time at Mouton Rothschild and when he had um, dinners at Mouton and all the vintages would be coming out Milady, uh, Madame de Fleur, or Milady de Fleur, or whatever, the housekeeper would go down the hedgerows and the side lanes of Mouton and just hack all the wildflowers. There was none of this bank of lilies or something picked from a frog. It was all the flowers that grew mm. around the vineyard, mm. the vines of Mouton. And those were then put in 
the vases and arranged in the dining rooms and salons of the Chateau Mouton when the wine dinners came so that all you ever got was the essence of the grape. Yeah. And also that was just amazingly, you know, that, that always stunned me at how elegant and stylish that was and then it made perfect yeah. sense. That was the finesse to take the, the actual... Just what was there. You know, and, the, and the grapes yeah. would throw and then the wine and so when you smelled the wine yeah. you know doing the big tastings all these great vintages um, there was nothing to interrupt this you know there wasn't a jarring nose in the house amazing really yeah yeah it's amazing and what and what and what I think it's very interesting what you said about the the, um, the wild plants being um, more easily accepted by um, the upper classes I think well, not that in itself, but the fact that this has now been placed in in in, in a no, restaurant no, no. context that, that is that is highly affirmative and highly because it seems to me that that thing with the vault in the pyramid is that it's 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 like there's a kind of um, concealment by ignorance. You know, there's chickweed growing in everybody's garden. There's there's um, hogweed growing in everybody's hedgerow, and, and all of these other. Oh, plants. hairy bittercress, you know, hairy crest. bittercress. They're, they're, they're things that that. that Angry gardeners yank out and hurl <laughs> onto the compost heap and spit with with with, no, no, with no, no, all the way down the motorway. Everything really <laughs> mowed flat, you know, nothing, nothing left, nothing allowed to grow. You're like, what? Why? So, so I, I mean, I just see this process that that has occurred. That 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 that, that like-minded chefs who've, who've moved through the different phases of development of this this modern food, uh, but with all these reference points, you know, like people used to eat this stuff. I mean, that's a, yep pretty basic reference point suddenly now pulled it out of that obscurity and concealment by ignorance and gone this is really great stuff um, and, I know, but one uh, of the big differences with you though Miles is the quality of um, the produce you dispatch so from, there's a confidence in that whatever you buy from Forager um, when you open those boxes it's in immaculate condition you know and that is and that's that's well do you know, do you know I, can, I can't i can't really take credit for that that that's that's down to um there's a guy that worked for me um for some years called uh, edward blaine yes you remember ed he i used to call it. uh and he really is an artist so he he just took this aesthetic approach to what we do amazing and to be no, honest no. it's a bit like a like a Nazi commander in terms of it, because I got him heading up the picking, and then he did a stop check, and, and, and you just didn't mess with Ed's rules, you know. I mean, I'm the boss, but I used to get this real kind of vibe if I didn't pick to the standard that he had just instituted, you see. I couldn't get away with it. I couldn't get away with it. But 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 he transformed the, the, the quality, and, uh, you know, I, any, any anybody in Ireland listening, um, we'll put a link to Ed's current... Activities. Kind of adventures. Exactly. You can track him down. Amazing. Oh, no. No, because I also what's very lovely here about that is because you're only as good as your team. Exactly. You're only as good as the people you work with. Exactly. And so when you work with people who are happy and engaged and content and spirited and curious and fascinated and want to get on board and delight in the produce that they are handling or whatever it is, um, makes the world of difference. You know, if there is indifference and lack of um, interest, then, you know, you can drag, you know, the horse to water, but it will not drink that old age-old chestnut. Um, but it is true. Whereas if you've got, you know, one of the, I always remember cooking with Alistair Little, and hey, hey yeah, one simple maxim, if you're going to cook, you need to be greedy. <laughs> you know, quite simply, you know, oh my God, yes, you know, if you're going to cook it, if you don't want to eat this, why would you think anyone else would? <laughs> 
And it was such a brilliantly simple distillation of everything, yeah. you know. And did you really get up this, uh, you know, early this morning, having got to bed late last night, to cook something uninteresting yeah. and not delicious? Yeah. And you go, you know, oh, well, that's nice. When you really want to be nice, you know, that's uninteresting. But it'd be fantastic and do something brilliant and make this thing... You've got to be hungry. Really? You know, full fat, you know, Billy Bunter appetites. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. I'm going to have to um, insist that you answer the question, Jeremy. God. Yes, of course I'm. <laughs> like some all. politician, you've waffled on for... <laughs> hours and hours and hours. Now, why do you do what you do? Gosh, that's such a good crap. Why do I do what I do? Well, I think in to distill it, I lucked out with our parents who love food, grandmother who loved food, I ate good food all through my childhood, um, which was, I know that's quite normal now, but at the time it was quite rare. And when the restaurant thing started, I think I'm the same age, roughly, as the restaurant world that we now inhabit is. And so I lucked out working with extraordinary people like Simon Maybe you're the personification of it, Jeremy. Oh, well, hardly that. You know, there are many who would observe that crime. Um, but definitely, I, I lucked out working with amazing people. I was, I'm not sure I would have continued because it's a hard, it's a hard life. I mean, there's no two ways of putting There's no easy way of putting it. It is a hard life. And so to make this hard life um, fascinating and engaging is the food community. And so I lucked out working with amazing chefs like Simon Hopkinson and Alistair. I met wonderful people in those kitchens. And the chefs I cook with in Scotland as well. And I mean, who are still in you know, see on the rare occasion I can ever get back there when I have time. Um, and then the amazing food community of the producers. And so, I'm, you know, for me, if it, the second it becomes hard, I've got an attention span of a newt. I get bored very quickly mm. and un, uninterested very, very quickly. Yeah. So I've got to have my, my focus constantly on what we're doing. Um, and but one of the chief things of that is working with great people. Mm. And that's not just the, you know, because it's in the kitchen, but it's everyone we work with. So what's keeping you interested now? Very good question. I think at the moment I'm trying to write a book. Um, I do a lot of writing. Um, podcasts. <laughs> um, but primarily, Miles, it really is an amazing array of people yeah. with whom I get to engage. Some only every now and again, some on a daily basis and everything in So it's all about the food community. Yeah, people. Yeah. I think mean, it's a very yeah. big thing. I was at Neil's Yard Daily's 40th birthday celebrations on Sunday and um, Jason Hines stood up to speak for Randolph and the whole thing because he basically runs it all now. And he said, interestingly, that when he distilled what it was of what made Neil's Yard Daily so special, as special now as it was when it first started and has remained so through all these long years, was people. There's amazing staff they work with and there's a sadness when people go, but then there's also the delight when new people start, you know, and we luck out fantastically with the people we get in our kitchens wow. um, and folk who want to come with us. And one of the things they always inevitably say first off is your ingredients, your menus, you know, yeah. that's what, you know, they're interesting and we go, well, that's incredibly kind and flattering. Um, and that's what I think primarily um, manoeuvres it. And I'm in a sort of very blessed situation, God touches wood, you know, very quickly, um, of having, you know, being able to have a tenure, at least in this extraordinary 
building in Soho that's right in the heart of London. Mm. Um, and I'm able to cook food, you know, that is absolutely firmly rooted in the country. So mm. I get the best of both worlds, which is very rare and very precious. Well, um, I'm going to ask a more run-of-the-mill question there, but I think it's, I th- I think it's worth <laughs> asking. It's, it's kind of, you know, like, and, and, and it's, it's kind of what's your favourite kind of question. So what is your favourite dish that you've produced in all these years? What's the oh favourite Jeremy Lee dish for oh, you? Oh, golly, what's your favourite film? What's your favourite oh, book? No, <laughs> you don't have one, really, but just pick. pick you know what I mean? Um, I suppose the, the dish that still stuns me, because I'm amazed it went when did is the smoked eel sandwich um, and that I could I probably do eat most days still you know um, but I also love an omelette smoked eel sandwich can you tell us a bit more about the smoked eel sandwich smoked eel sandwich was um, when I was cooking at Anniston Little um, where I first met Mr Beal whose company was called Beal Eels <laughs> and he's a proper Lincolnshire man where the great which is a great eel beds of um Right. The British Isles. Because it was Fenland. It was the Fenland. Yeah. Which the Fens came out. And it was very opposite Holland, you know, Flanders and Holland, which has the great eel culture of Europe. And he supplied these amazing smoked eels. I just thought, I'm just, just extraordinary. I've never eaten food like this before in my life. Uh, Mum and Dad were very good at that one, but smoked eels, I mean, it's about the rarest, most luxurious luxury in smoked food. And there we did this, you know, beautiful potato pancake. There was a layer of bacon and a horseradish, and I just fell in love. And then he just smoked it, and I just fell in love with this dish. I think it was extraordinary. And because his um, partner at the time was Danish, there was this wonderful Danish smoked eel dish that we used to do tomatoes and eggs it was fantastic um, and I fell in love with it and it, just, it became a great feature on all the menus I was to write from there on in and at then come a day when I left Alice and went to cook with Terence Conrad at the Blueprint Cafe okay yeah yeah that's where we first met yeah where I first met you and one day there was you know this one of those awful mornings which nothing and nothing went right and I couldn't get a menu I, they couldn't get a menu I mean I was going to have the time the sands the time you know the cocks worrying and sands running out and I went oh god oh god right um, let's do that's, you know let's make a brilliant smoked eel sandwich where it came from I've got no bloody idea um, I grabbed a loaf of poilin bread sourdough from the fridge um, which most of you used to get from Neil's Art Daily at the time there was horseradish cream that I stole from the main course section. There's a red onion picker I stole from the cold starter section and just literally just raided the pantry and everyone's <laughs> sections. They were left more but gasping for air. I just grilled these slices of sourdough. I just made this amazing sandwich and went bang, there you go. So those all, are the three ingredients? Or is there more to it? That, that is it? That is it. It is literally or, or four uh, two the bread. Yeah. sourdough bread, grilled and very lightly buttered, and then a horseradish cream. Uh, mustard cream, smoked eel, done. Red onion, red onion, and then a little red onion pickle on the side. Okay, okay. and that's it. Beautiful. And then with the spatula going, and Terence here went, "Wow, talk about keep it simple." And it's been on the menu ever since. And when we, but when I started at Corvadas, um, and I was working with Julian, our graphics, and Sam and Eddie were going, what's this menu going to look like? Well, well Jeremy, what's your vision? And I was going, I've got a vision, I've got a vision, I've got a visionary. I've got some food. I've got some food. Exactly, I've got vision chips more like, you know. <laughs> well, it was shocking, really. Um, and um, 
finally the design came through brilliantly through Gillian and you know all the chat we had with these boxes were all around the main menu itself um, and one box remained stubbornly empty and I went ah oh, gee puppets and it was intended to be a truffle sandwich funnily enough it's one of my other great all time favourites in the last oh. days when you could afford such things now it's otherworldly and our truffle supplier at the time just couldn't get through. It was in the, it was the 4th of January, whatever it was, and it was a dreadful winter. So you, you know, nothing was up and running yet. Um, and I said, well, we could pop a smoke tail sandwich in there instead. And I went, really? And I went, hmm? Smoke tail? Sandwich department. The great so it sort of, sort of came in through the back door. Really. Ever so slightly. It just sort of just sat there. Yeah, this sort of timid little Miss Markle of a dish. Um, and it stuck. It was the most remarkable thing. And it has remained on the menu ever since. And, you know, and people are struck by its simplicity. Um, when we costed it, it worked out to be the most expensive dish we had on the menu, which was even funnier. Um, like, how does that work? You know, that a price that spoke to you, Jeremy? I went, dear. Um, and it stuck. And it's become our great love and a dear companion and a good friend. And it's stood by us all this time. Um, and it's very interesting on whatever, um, whatever cook goes on, um, the hot stuff section of the is prepared. Yeah, it's a very nice thing. Um, we were sitting going, well, there you go. One of London's great dishes, apparently, you know, which is an incredibly, um, you know, makes one's heart swell with pride. It know? makes one's heart swell with pride, and it also, it's a blow f- for simplicity. Yeah, no, it was, it's strong. where it's at. No, no, just going, God, the humble sandwich. Yeah. Not so humble. You know, yeah. Amazing. So that's a little, but there are so many dishes we love, and depending on what month of the year it is and what time of year, and there's things that we can't put on the menu constantly because they're only around for a very short period of time, and so the specials are very important to us. Yeah. Dishes that we just put, we just sell verbally because we only have like six of this and that. And all of those are in in essence, they're a response, right? You're you're yeah. you're, you're you're aware that this is available, and then you have to respond to it. Yeah. You know, there's only three kilos of sea kale available. Well, I'll have it all, you know, some eye-watering amount of money, and it's going to be run for three days, bang, that's it. Mm. You know, and you might get a little delivery here and there, or what have you. Or, you know, um, when I was a kid growing up, you know, calf's liver was the scene quite normal waffle. You know, people wouldn't eat anything either side of it. Mm. And when um, lovely James Quetlaw started selling co- goat for his Cabrito goat company and we amazingly bought the first carcass so I can't quite believe that but with it came those unbelievable pluck and lines the offal was sensational and kid liver if you ain't had it get it it's spectacular it is spectacular Mm -hmm. and we lucked out with amazing things that we made with that um mad crazy fries and hashes and stuff because there was just this abundance of it but boy it was was magnificent yeah Uh, and remains so it's still the best offline I know I can get. In fact, it reminds me, I need to go and buy some right away. Jeremy, we could chew the fat all afternoon, mm-hmm. and, and had you already gone and got that, we could perhaps chew the off all afternoon. Yeah, exactly but, so. However, we have something else to do. So <gasps> I'm keen to... Uh, what be that, Miles? ...move into... So we're here in the in the World Wild podcast, the wonderful world thereof. Um, but last week, we we, uh, we gave birth to the World Wild Pick cast oh, because wow. we realise that sometimes we have conversations about something with a visual aspect. Mm-hmm. Last week it was all of the photographs from our friend Mark Lewis in Arizona. We were talking about them, and I realised, well, we can't put this out in a podcast, so we we put it on YouTube as a slideshow. Oh, um, 
So what I want to do with you, if, if, if you're up for it, I've got a box of goodies over there. Oh, hurrah. I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> so we'll end this bit and start that bit. And um, so it's everybody, after, after you finish uh, this, you just pop over to YouTube and, and you can join us for the next bit. It is. But for now, thank you for joining us on the Worldwide Podcast. It's been an absolute delight. A great pleasure. Thank you, Richard.